You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Lovely summer's day here in TW11. We are right in the heart of the European flat season. And boy, oh boy, did we get a thriller for the Coral Eclipse. Verdani was the winner for France. Lydia Hislop is with me today. You were there working, Lydia. What kind of eclipse was it for you? Absolutely fantastic. It was so brilliant. We were anticipating it was going to be going into it. Um, I think the horses had won 11 Group 1 races between them going into it. The horse that went off favourite, Bay Bridge, was the only one who hadn't won a Group 1. You couldn't conclusively count out any of the six of them. In the end, it was a really compact race. Uh, the, the pace not that strong in the early stages. There was a, not an obvious front runner. In the end, Alan Kerr and Bay Bridge went forward, but they were left well behind in the straight. And it was Verdaini produced on the outside by Christophe Soumillon for Jean-Claude Rouget, who produced a turn of foot similar to the burst of acceleration you'd sown when winning the Prix du Jockey Club, and he was able to win, but Mishriff found a whole load of trouble on the inside, and he finished strongly on the outer one switch, and many people felt that he was a little unfortunate on the day. And <laughs> there was further controversy when Christophe Soumillon allowed Verdaini to drift right and shorten up native trailer Lord North after the line. There is so much to talk about. There is that and the Haydock incident a little bit later on. But there was great cause for celebration after the race. Wonderful scenes from Christophe Sumior, Great scenes from his children. And assistant trainer Marie Rojo was going absolutely wild after the race. This meant so much to her. It meant so much to the whole of France as well. Uh, I caught up with her this morning to ask her why uh, such a, a great celebration after the Coral Eclipse and the victory of Verdani. Hello everyone. Well, hello Nick. Uh, it was, of course, for us, it was meaning a lot because coming overseas with a French horse and knowing that you have top uh, English horses to compete with, it's a lot of pressure and you know that you have to be at the top of the top. And seeing him winning like this, we walk the track and stand down in the morning and we were, <gasps> we were so impressed with everything. And so much pressure, but then you see the horse coming this way and Christophe giving him such a good ride. Uh, it was just a relief for everyone, but it was just so much joy to share it with the princess who was there. And of course, the boss was delighted to yeah, to win this race in England. It meant a lot because, of course, the last one who did the jo uh, Jockey Club and then the Coral Eclipse was last year, St. Mark's Basilica. And he's such a top horse that, you know, expecting to do the same is also, meaning would also mean that we have a top horse. So for the French people to see this, being able being able to to have a, such a horse in our training centers is just, is just amazing for us because obviously we know that the English and Irish horses are top level and sometimes they beat us too many times actually on our ground. So beating them on this ground, on the English soil, uh, means a lot for us because we feel like, you know, we're getting there, we can compete and we're able to raise a French flag from time to time. So that's good. That's actually uh, a huge national pride, I'd say. And just on a, on a personal level, you're traveling with the horse backwards and forwards from, from France. You know what a valuable commodity he is. How much, how much pressure did, did you feel leading the team from that, from that perspective? 
Yeah. Well, when they told me I was going, it was such like it was an incredible gift. It was just a, such a big opportunity for me to go there and to be present with her rider, his rider, Dominica. So just to be there, it was it was just incredible. And um, of course, it's a lot of pressure, but the horse made it so easy. Um, I really mean it. He was super quiet, very quiet. And the team at Sendan was amazing to welcome us as well. And I would like to to thank them very much. They made it so easy and the horse was very quiet from the start to the end. And um, I think now we just need to relax, to take a bit of time and hopefully we'll do it again in the in Ireland. But from like now we are just focusing on the fact that he's going to have to recover from this race and from this trip. And everything was easy. Even with Brexit, it was actually quite easy to do everything. So pressure, but still good. <laughs> and he's all well this morning? Yes, he is. Yeah, he's going to have a bit of grass now and he's just going to um, um, rest a bit with, he's going to be ridden, but he's just going to have a bit of grass and see around and it's sh- it's shining right now. So it's going to be good for him to be outside. And but he likes sent down actually, so it's fine. Did you have any idea that there was a, there was a camera on you in the, in the closing <laughs> stages of the race? No, I wish I would have known this because obviously, well, I don't know if I would have behaved different, actually, to be honest. But um, I noticed the video right after, I don't know how long after the race, but everyone told me about it. And I didn't, I mean, obviously I was with the horse, so I didn't really focus on that. And when so many people sent to me, I was, oh my God, the first reaction was... Um, I mean, everyone who knows me would understand that that's a real me there. But yeah, it's it's very funny. And we were a little bit familiar with you from last season because you were uh, you spent a little time with Sir Mark Prescott and your father's horse Suesa was running was running here in in the UK. Um, how much pleasure did it give you to see Sir Mark winning the Grand Prix de Saint Cloud yesterday? Oh, it's so good! Yeah, so good for the team. This filly is incredible. I saw William Butler at Sendan actually on Friday when I arrived with the horse and we were talking about Alpinista. She's such a great feed and obviously it's very good for her owner as well. So, you know, big colors, the big silks are shining those days with Vadeni and uh, His Highness Agakan and Len Wade's now. So it's very good for them. They have invested so much into racing that it's really good for Sir Mark, who is obviously one of the kings in England and yeah it's, it's it's just so good to see him shining on our French soil as well so it's one to one one French in England and one English in France it's okay for them and understandably delighted Marie Rojo this was a really notable strike I thought Lydia for France because mm. the cupboard well if not bare has been a bit spartan in recent seasons and I just before we chatted this morning I had a look back at good French horses in the last decade and the list is, you can count them on the fingers of both hands. Well, well, since Sirius des Aigles in 2012 and Trev the following year, horses that have just got into the 120s, Charm Spirit, Solo, Almanzor, comfortably the best. And since then, Cloth of Stars, the two art winners, Waldgeist and Sotsas and Seeliway, and that's your lot. Mm. Well, I mean, I think you can see that playing out on the... European scene and I'm glad to see such a talisman for French racing coming back because you want all the key players in Europe to be strong in their own ways and what we have been seeing was increasingly horses from Ireland, horses from Britain going over to France and inverted commas seeing easy pickings in their particularly in their group three and group two races and a view that they were worth a lot of money 
compared with how competitive they were um, compared with the races if they stayed at home in Britain and in Ireland. I do hope Vidoni is, is a sign of a really strong uh, nationwide revival. It was great to see him there. He wasn't initially going to be coming, was he? Um, Jean-Claude Rouget, ne- immediately after the Prix du Jockey Club, was talking about the Almanzor route, which is is taking in the Guillaume Donano, which is a, a group one level prize funded, but a group two level race, rather than this, and then going to the Irish Champion Stakes and elsewhere. Thankfully, the Aga Khan and his daughter, Princess Zara, spoke really well about this at Sandown on Saturday, uh, wanted to do the sporting thing, wanted to do the right thing with a group one winner, roll onto a group one race. Exactly. And it's great to see him in the Eclipse. And he goes to the Irish Champion Stakes next. That seems like a good spot for him. He's got that little bit of turn of foot that'll be suited by Leopardstown, hasn't he? I, I, I think, I'd love to see him in the Judmont International, but I see they need to give him a break at some point. Yeah, I asked uh, Jean-Claude Rouget whether uh, the York was in their mind. He said no. Um, so he, he, was, he was focused on the Irish Champion Stakes. Yeah, I think it'll suit him really well. And this horse has got that burst of acceleration. Christophe Soumillon said here on this occasion that the horse just seemed to sort of stumble slightly or, 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 or take a, a, a wrong step as he hit the lead, which is he, he was accounting for him, you know, not going away in the way that he did in, in, in the Prix du Jockey Club. Um, but who also, I think, had to play the horse sooner than he probably would have ideally wished because he could see Mishrif going well at that stage on his inside and having horses in front of him and not be able to go past him. So he was kind of trying to um, seize position advantage at that point. So I think the race could have panned out differently depending on how, in different ways in which it would, run, it would have been run. I do think Vadini is brilliant, however. It was Mishrif unlucky? Uh, yes. To some degree, whether, I mean, I think it, it could have been very close between them. Um, afterwards, David Egan was saying that he felt a little, the horse felt a little bit rusty, that he wasn't going as well as he would like him to. He was also stuck behind horses that, that weren't, weren't going as well as him. Um, you know, Baybridge uh, and Alan Kerr were, were ahead and he, was, he just had nowhere to go to try and deliver his challenge. He hadn't obviously run since the Saudi Cup where he ran abjectly and was eased down by, by David. Um, this was a, a real raw back, I think. Um, and I think it'll put him spot on for the international. That's a very waffly way of saying it. I think the Daney would have won it anyway. Uh, but I can see that in the exact circumstances of how this panned out, uh, there were different ways in which different things could have happened. If it had been a stronger run race, it might have been yeah. different. He was weak in the market and there was a, a supposition, wasn't there, that he would need the race as he did last year. If that's the case, then roll on Mishrif against Baid in the, in the Judmont International, if all goes well with, with Baid in the, in the Sussex Stakes. Yeah, that's going to be fantastic, isn't it? Um, and I think Mishrif is really well suited by York. That's going to, that's going to see him uh, being able to um, sit relatively handily um, on the outside and you know, build up his rows from a long way out. I mean, that m- might have been able to happen at Sandown, but of course that was a you know, seasonal debut and the race itself probably didn't pan out in terms of the early stages. There, there was no obvious front runner and that did become an issue. It was, it was messy in a sense, but you know, still, you know, top class horses find a way to win and Vedeni did, did do that. And, and Native Trail ran really well in third. Didn't he it? clearly stayed the 10 fellow. It was the first attempt at it. Lord North bounced back, you know, probably better suited by the, by the faster ground. The disappointments were Alan Kerr and Baybridge. Michael Stout was saying about the latter, um, that maybe the race came a little bit too soon after Royal Ascot. Um, would it have been the fastest ground he encountered? 
Yes, I suspect it would have been. Yeah. I suspect it would have been. And I think Alan Kerr, well, he had to go out and make the running. And I, I doubt that was entirely ideal. And this is very much the top table of 10 furlong races. And maybe Alan Kerr might want to go up to a little bit further, a mile and a half in order to try and add to supplement his great uh, Group 1 win in the Tassels Gold Cup. Okay, Sumion got a 12-day suspension for allowing his Mount Vedeni to drift after the line as he was celebrating uh, and not pay due attention to the rail, which runs out quite quickly after the line at Sandown, and that meant he tightened up uh, William Buick and James Doyle quite notably. He said to you in the interview on Racing TV afterwards, he pretty well accepted it, held his hands up, it was his fault, he hadn't ridden there for 15 years. Uh, but he thought 12 days was a bit harsh. What did you think? Well, I think you can, you can run the argument that it was a bit harsh compared with some other items of interference that we've seen, um, notably um, the Norfolk Stakes, which is uh, an outcome that is going to be challenged officially in front of the disciplinary panel this Thursday when Paul Hannigan got 10 days for allowing his horse to carelessly, in the steward's view, drift continually left and interfere with at least three horses. Um, and comparatively with that, people felt that you know that was in the... Um, in in a, in a race that 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 people from the outside feel that there was some intent involved. Obviously, the stewards didn't because otherwise they'd have put it into uh, the improper category. And also, it compromised horses' chances of uh, at least finishing second in the race. And they compared that with Verdani. The race was already over, um, and therefore they felt that the twelve days was um, harsh. Um, whilst I think that the Norfolk Stakes, uh, what happened in the Norfolk Stakes is um, symbolic of a problem that we have in terms of interference in British British racing, certainly in the culture of of British racing. Uh, I I think that those kind of drifts are not properly policed, of which more no doubt later this week. But coming back to the Christophe Soumillon um, ban, if that had sort of stood against a more robust interference in a, in a more robust interference culture, you'd say 12 days absolutely fine. Because the reasons being um, that horses don't, you know, cut out immediately after the line, you know, they're going full gas to the line. And so there's still there's still an element of danger involved. And the stewards will tell you that when there is um, the proximity of the rail involved, that that exacerbates the risk. I mean, uh, under the notes to penalty guidelines, in judging the effect, the panel, this is the stewards panel on the day, should take into consideration the overall effect on the sufferer, this is in terms of interference, which includes the degree of danger, e.g. squeezed up against the rails. That's the number one consideration. And that's why the, the days racked up for Christophe Soumillon. Both William Buick and um, James Doyle had nowhere to go. And Lord North, James Doyle's man, could easily have come down. I spoke to James actually afterwards um, and asked him to compare the two incidents because he was involved in, he was a sufferer in, in both of them. And um, at that point, he, he, he could see both sides of the argument, really. He didn't seem to be astonished that the stewards had taken a very strong view about interference against the rail because he said you know it, it was one of those things where it could have been very dangerous and then it wasn't but you know there was there was a was a potential for that and I think that's why the, the stewards reacted that way I mean Sean Parker who's the head of stewarding and the chief steward on the day called it inattention he said uh, uh, Christophe Soumillon had his hand off the rein with a celebratory gesture. He had no control over the horse and uh, his horse and the horses on his inside were tightened up and checked severely and could have come down. And so that's why and the, it's the proximity of the rail that caused the aggravated penalty.
it isn't sometimes if you if you've been watching as much racing as we have and i'm not saying you know we are the absolute authority but i'm saying if you you sometimes get a hunch don't you when when you get a, a penalty handed to you on a piece of paper said oh he's got 12 days and i i was listening to you and chris dixon who we're actually going to hear from later on this podcast uh, on racing tv and you went oh, 12 days and your eyebrows raised as though you were quite surprised and that was my sort of gut feeling i totally understand why they've done it but as you say it's context isn't it in the wider context of all the of all the bands that are dished out for interference it seems it seems tough yeah exactly so my 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 instinct gut reaction was my goodness 12 days but that's kind of within a context that we've we've come to feel you know isn't taking interference interference seriously enough but um in this case i think they have um and I, they've gone at the upper end you know following their rules uh you know, correctly all the way through the procedures. But as we discussed before, my my problem here is in the interpretation of the uh, change between or the echelon between careless to improper and the interpretation that a drift such as what happened in the Norfolk Stakes is uh, not a manoeuvre. I think that the, the, the this kind of action, the absence of correction has, be, has these days become so predictable and so marked that in effect it is a manoeuvre. And so therefore I feel that, that that's what needs to be looked at and that the kind of incidents that happen in the Norfolk Stakes need to be addressed more firmly and, and come under the uh, auspices of improper riding. Now, I know that that is not the view of, of uh, the BHA at the moment. I know um, this is no criticism of the stewards. This is them following the guidelines and the understanding of, of where we stand. But I think we've got to the point where in British racing, these um, uh, sustained drifts ha happen so often, are so predictable that something needs to be done. And at the moment, I don't think the rules are keeping up with the reality on the race course. Right. I haven't quite finished with Sandown, but I think as we're on the subject, Lydia, it seems silly not to go to Haydock and talk about the free wind Eshada incident, which if anyone was on the moon and, and didn't see it, was Robert Havlin going up the inside of Jim Crowley. So free wind going up the inside of Ashada and the debate for the stewards was did Crowley tighten up Havlin or did Havlin ambitiously go for a gap that wasn't there and they firmly went with the latter view that was not the popular view and they gave Robert Havlin five days and he explained to Nick Lightfoot on Racing TV yesterday that he would appeal that and I think most observers think he's got a pretty good chance but of course what most observers didn't have was access to all the angles that the stewards had. No. Um, and we have had access to those angles. It's kind of the British Horse Racing Authority to share those with us. And um, potentially those might be um, embedded in the stewards report. Um, I'm, I'm preempting them. I have no reason to think that they necessarily will. But I know that this is something that they have done to explain um, an incident whereby the conventional angles that the public will have seen, notably via ITV, where there is a, a further angle that, that illuminates uh, the, why the steward, stewards have taken this view however <laughs> we've seen those extra angles and well there isn't a, a, a dead behind scout angle so that would be when you are like the opposite the direct opposite of a head-on so a, a, a backside on essentially where you can actually see you know horses who are obviously t wider at the back than they are at sort of narrow shoulders at the front and sometimes that can mean that uh, a gap that looks big enough from the front angle can sometimes from the exact reverse angle reveal itself to be actually a little bit too small now the the angle that's available in terms of the scout angle at haydock doesn't show you that clearly does it nick 
Well, there's two angles that I, I hadn't seen at all. One is effectively from the infield, if you like, from a bit yep. of a distance. Yeah. Not that conclusive. And the one that really hangs Robert Havlin, if, if that was the only angle you had any access to, is if you're imagining you're, you're standing right down at the bottom end of the stands at Haydock, so furthest away from the winning line, and you're looking diagonally up at the horses. So they're over to your top left, if you see what I'm, I'm saying. It's quite hard to explain this in audio. Um, and I that think you're doing quite well, I, I have to say. Right. That's the angle. So imagine you're in the silver ring, or what used to be the silver ring at Haydock, and you're looking up the track towards the finishing line with the horses galloping away from you. That is the, the sort of angle that if that was the only piece of evidence the Haydock stewards had to go on, you could see why they made the decision they did. Hmm. But that's the only one of the five angles available that seems to look bad for, for Rab Havlin. And, and I'd suggest it's a bit of a trick of the eye because it's not dead behind. Uh, and so with all the evidence in front of me, I think I would struggle to come to the same conclusion that they have, though I can see the one angle, which I think has meant they've done what they've done. That's, that's, I'm, there's a little bit of guessology there, but that's what I'm yeah. going with. Yeah, and it's all about also um, going up the inside of somebody, isn't it? And there's the sort of the written rules and the unwritten rules. And the written rules are slightly unhelpful about this because there's a section in the BHA Rules of Racing that talks about overtaking on the inside and false rails. But when you look into it, overtaking on the inside is only talked about in terms of an unrailed part of the course and then about a false rail, not a continuous running rail, which is what we're dealing with here. And so then you come into the sort of unwritten rules agreed amongst jockeys versus the written rules that the BHA um, regulate under and whether it's cricket uh, to go up the inside. Now, I know that uh, different uh, countries have different views about this. I'm talking about the unwritten rules here. Um, in terms of the jockeys, I know uh, some some <laughs> some Irish uh, jockeys have observed to me that uh, the uh, uh, concern about people coming up your inside is is a particularly British problem. Now they would say that, wouldn't they? Um, but here in this case. Robert Havlin said afterwards that sometimes horses roll on and off the rail and I thought I gave Jim half a furlong to see if he was going to go back on. The gap was there so I sent my filly in and she was going well. It just got tight but credit to the filly she organised herself and picked up. He then suggested that he was um, surprised by what happened. Um, normally he said um, if it's open straight away i.e. a gap you would just wait because they can roll on and off off the rail but I felt he was off the rail for enough um you know I his filly looked as though she was leaning into the haggis filly that was the runner-up I thought I sh I'm going to take the opportunity I was going well as I was halfway in there it started to get tight so the question is was there a, a long enough a viable gap um the stewards have said that the gap was only briefly viable all right I've got a question for you if the if the appeal board finds that Havlin was within his rights to do what he was doing does that mean they then have to re retroactively ban jim crowley well do they have the facility to do that no, I, I don't I, know i think they probably have i mean i think they probably should have a retrospective um ability to uh, address issues that have, might have been missed during the course course of a of a day i think that's just you know sensible good policing isn't it uh, you know i i i you know i i, I suspect that there is 
that that rule do, that 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 facility does exist but i seem to remember that sort of there's something dimly ringing away in my memory that some retrospective action did take place and uh, as ever of course uh, a mighty hoo-ha kicked off as a result and <laughs> the VHA have gone nowhere near it since well a pretty fair chance of getting that turned over you would think on all the evidence available to us back to sandown lydia i wasn't there you were but again reports filtering through of too few horses in the pre-parade ring mishrif not being in the parade granted special dispensation it's there and provided for within the rules but it you do get to thinking with attendance is massively down again for the coral eclipse and great british racing spending a lot of money trying to get people to go to the races why are we not putting the the basic principles of of providing a good service to the public and punter first why is it that we are allowing the practitioners so much latitude so much leeway that we're removing from what is the very natural theater and entertainment of the sport i just don't get it i couldn't agree with that point more it's a point that i i regularly make when i broadcast from sandown i suspect you do as well i think sandown is um one of the worst offenders in this area i'm not suggesting it's the only race course where something like this happens absolutely not but when i was last there um prior to um saturday um for the eclipse was for the bet three six five mile um the group two day with the really really good days racing actually and a regular at sandown a race goer came over to me and said, uh, why is it that post-COVID simply no horses come into the pre-parade ring anymore? This was a key aspect to this gentleman's enjoyment of the races. It's somewhere that he went to. And he said he may as well not bother going there because the horses just don't go into the pre-parade ring anymore. Compounded with that is that Sandown has a... um, it seems to allow, or the stewards stewarding there seem to allow uh, trainers consistently to bring their horses late into the paddock itself. Quite often we see horses for one or half a circuit walking around or else sometimes they don't even get there at all and are just uh, met by the jockey under the trees at the top of the walkway and head straight out onto the course now this didn't happen on uh, on saturday for the eclipse but when we got to the parade mishrif didn't parade i mean first of all i was delighted to see a parade that these were um, suspended again during during covid in terms of um you know uh, transmission too many people getting involved in the process and wanting to simplify it thank goodness we've actually seen a parade back but yes mishrif wasn't involved in that so it is just so unsatisfactory and if you're going to want to get uh, people to come to the races and actually engage with the sport engage with the horses engage with what the the theater of the actual horse racing is rather than anything else then you need to provide them with these fundamental parts of the experience and we've had everyone's turf launching in the in the past week and um rod street from great british racing was talking to me on racing tv on saturday and he was um talking about uh, what a great day out it is and we were discussing the need to engage people in a way that actually brings them back in the future well if you're not doing the basics you're not going to do that now just one more thing from sandown uh, mm. john gosden and frankie de Tori. The, oh, the, i know i know because ollie bell on itv racing went to ask john gosden whether frankie de Tori might be well who was going to ride in spiral yeah, it was an open on, question. It was an open question. Who would ride in Spiral and the foul mistakes on Friday? Now, this was raised on this podcast last week by Dave Yates, who said that a source he couldn't name had told him confidently 
that he thought Dottori would still keep the ride on in spiral, notwithstanding all the bad blood over the last few weeks. And what Ollie got was a, a rather uh, opaque, but nonetheless interesting answer from Gosden, um, which suggested to me that this was not an open and shut case. Definitely. I thought John Gosden looked pretty uncomfortable um, during this, this line of, of questioning. I mean, all in all, it hasn't been a great passage of play, has it? I mean, it, this is a, um, a fallout that has been played out very much in public. Um, I know that uh, the statement put out by um, John Gosden last week suggested it was the media who'd forced it there. Well, I think that's not really right, is it? Because, um, you know, John Gosden, uh, what could be overheard having strong words with Frank Dettori immediately after the Gold Cup. The same happened with Bjorn Nielsen um, after the Gold Cup. Um, John Gosden then made a series of comments over a number of days when anger couldn't necessarily, you know, immediate heat of anger couldn't necessarily be blamed for that. And we, I think we spoke last week about the, the dynamic, the power dynamic there and how, you know, jockeys are very explicitly in this scenario, the employees. Well, I think we saw the boot on the other foot here, don't you think? I think that John Gosden was having to um, bear in mind that what he feels is not yeah. necessarily what Patricia Thompson well, wants for her horse in Spiral. The, the question that I posed to Dave last week was that if you're, if you're Patricia Thompson and your options, you, know, you haven't got that many options at the very top level for a horse of that caliber. I mean, I know she's two to five and you could say, oh, you strap anyone to her back and she'd probably win. But actually, you and I both have seen enough racing to know that that's not necessarily the case. And you want someone who's you know, expert in group one races. So mm-hmm. if, 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 if it's not going to be Frankie Dettori, history tells you that Chivley Park liked Ryan Moore. Well, Aidan O'Brien's got tenebrism in the race, just for starters, and a couple of other bigger price horses. He's going to run at least her or both or three or whatever. So he's not going to be available, likely as not. Your, your cupboard is not that f- chock full. And, and if you've got a guy that's won the two group ones on her, then it's, you're going to have to make a very persuasive case not to put him back on, aren't you? And that's the, that's the thing. I mean, uh, John Gosling was saying that Frankie's, schedule this weekend might preclude a riding on Friday but it, it I don't know what's gone on behind closed doors but all you can say Lydia is that it, it's clearly put everybody in a slightly uncomfortable situation definitely definitely oh and the only reason that Frankie Dettori presumably is has made all of these arrangements to go to Belmont on Saturday I mean you know he might have been able to fit it in but he would have presumably you know had all of this not happened um framed his week around in spiral in the Falmouth stakes because as you say he's ridden her to victory the last twice and he has this this he had this close relationship with John Gosden so this situation has been caused by that and you can see it from Chibley Parkstead's point of view Frankie Dettori's been on this the back of this filly for four of the last five starts and you've just outlined why you wouldn't want to necessarily go go elsewhere John Gosden said to Ollie Bell sabbatical was not a lightly chosen word word I'm absolutely over the moon with what he's doing he's getting out there he's in Germany he's going to ride a lot for Mark Johnson next week at Newmarket because Joe Fanning I think has hurt his arm and then he's off to Belmont riding there so it's exactly what I wanted to see and he and I will be back together very sensibly when we've passed through this but I think he knows as well as I do you've got to be riding and doing these things and I think and then he said and not having any distractions I'm really pleased he's got the program he's got and then he said in terms of the open question of Inspiral I'm not going to answer your question no I mean John Gosson started off being very happy with the Frankie Dettori's policy of uh 
conserving the later years of his career, conserving his energy and keeping his focus by not flogging himself to ride here, there and everywhere. And now, clearly we don't know exactly what's gone on and there might be some nuance that we're not seeing out in the open in terms of that reference to not having any distractions. And obviously there was, there was reference made by John Gosden about Frankie Dishori being away um, immediately before and after Royal Ascot. Um, but nonetheless, the, this is now a changed position from John Gosden saying that Frankie Dishori needs to be more in the fray in order to be able to, delivering, to, to, to deliver when he's riding for him. And it's just kind of, again, talking about sort of the, you know, the power dynamic, there is an assumption and maybe that's based on the conversation that John Gosson said he had with to Ollie Bell that he had with, with Frankie de Torre. they've spoken again since that summit, summit meeting of last Friday um, you know there seems to be an assumption that uh, Frankie Torre and he will, will just seamlessly come back together in the good order of things well you know a lot of stuff has happened and you know a lot of stuff has happened in public and it has been a very difficult uncomfortable and not particularly pretty situation to watch well a lot of horses as i said made pretty glorious comebacks over the weekend torquato tasso got his career back on track in germany uh, life is good came back with a bang in the u.s at odds of five to one on but none was more spectacular than the winner of the group one uh, grand prix de saint Cloud. Now four-time Group 1 winner, Alpinista, homebred for Kirsten Rousing, trained by Sir Mark Prescott, ridden by her regular rider, Luke Morris, who's with me now. Luke, that's a, that's a massive performance. Did she even surprise you yesterday? Um, I think she did, to be honest, because uh, she's taken a long time to come to hand um, this kind of spring, early summer, and Sir Mark's been very patient with her. Um, she obviously missed her engagement in the Coronation Cup, and she's really only just come in her coat and she hasn't done a massive amount of work, so um, I'd be hopeful there's more to come. And it was a, a biggish field for, for a Group 1, and she came barreling down the outside there. It, it, it almost appeared to me as though as though you were quite taken by, or t- taken aback by how soon you'd hit the front. Yeah, she's obviously a lot of her runs last year were in Germany on pr- probably quite slow and bad ground, and there was a slight question mark of her her ability to act on the quicker surface, which it was it was given as soft, good to soft yesterday, but it was it was proper good to firm rattling ground. And um, I was slightly nervous as to how she would adapt and how good she would be on that surface. But you know, I gave her a squeeze turning in, and I kind of arrived there a bit sooner than ideal, and just sat for four or five strides, and she was away again then. So um, I thought she. She proved she's got a, a a little bit more of um a little bit more talent than probably some people gave her credit for, and she's equally as adaptable on decent a decent racing surface. Do you think that's just a parochial thing? You know, she's won four Group Ones; they all happen to be on the continent. Our eyes aren't all on her. Um, yeah, I think she's flown fl- flown slightly under the radar and probably hasn't gained the credit credit she deserved. Obviously, she gave um Tasso a good old whacking in Germany and you know she was I thought she was very good yesterday so um it'd be interesting to see where Sir Mark and Miss Rousing plot her next but you know hopefully there can be another good day in her somewhere. I mean did she feel better to you yesterday did she feel like a, a better stronger classier filly or did she feel much the same? No I thought she felt like she had she had a lot more class about her yesterday she was impressive the way she picked up instantly and um it was interesting. I, I hadn't sat on her since 
I sat her on Tuesday morning and I hadn't sat on her since uh, she'd last won her group one. So it's the first time I'd sat on her for seven months or so. And uh, I, I said to um, the assistant trainer, William Butler, that I, I thought it's the best she's ever worked and I think she feels better than ever. So it was nice that, you know, it, we were kind of indicated and she, she probably has improved again. And in terms of the the stable itself, this isn't the first time Sir Mark's had a quiet period in the in the spring and summer. If he doesn't feel the horses are quite right, he simply he simply doesn't run them. I mean, this is a pretty explosive way to to burst out of the doldrums, isn't it? It is, and obviously the, the horses they just they've just been so to come down this year. And Sir Mark's very patient; he knows his horses, and he he moves when uh, when they're ready. And so we ran a couple of nice ones on Friday, Saturday, and. They probably did slightly disappoint, so uh, we were slightly nervous going into yesterday at the form of the horses, but uh, it was a nice way to bounce back. Luke Morris there, Alpinista, as I said, one of a number of horses who've re-entered the fray this weekend. That's what, This weekend was about had everything for me, Lydia. You had Vidani doing his thing and Native Trail running well and all the horses, but there's a lot of, a lot of horses coming back. Oh, Torquato Tasso won really well, having disappointed the other day, and... Alpinista was brilliant. Uh, life is good coming back after the Dubai disappointment in the in the states. Um, and there was one other uh, momentary. For, oh, of course, Mishrif, sort of storming yeah. back, and you yeah. thought, well, we, we might have seen the last of him meaningfully. Yeah. There's a, a, a few new shoots for sure. There really are, and I, I, I should say, I mean, we discussed the Lancashire Oaks and what happened between uh, Rab Havlin and uh, Jim Crowley, but we should really also mention Free Wind for the Gosdens, because, mm. I mean, given the, the, the degree to which she, she was checked, how far she was shuffled, shuffled back, you think game over, and then she comes and wins by two and three quarter lengths. I mean, that was a really authoritative win, and I don't, you know, I wouldn't wish her success to be overshadowed by the other things. Alpinista has surreptitiously, <laughs> surreptitiously clocked up four group one wins now um and this was a superb performance coming back and beating Barati in the Grand Prix de Saint-Cloud um again it was just she was just authoritative completely sort of professional and just got it completely sorted towards the finish I I, you know I I really really welcome the win and obviously she's going to now be um heading towards I mean she's not going up in grade how can she but she's heading towards the arc um, and that the kind of banner group ones that would be recognised around the globe as the absolute elite races at that level. And she has absolutely, totally earned that right. And she, of course, she, she beat Torquato Tasso last year, um, you know, in Hopgarten. She did. A form that looks even better now. And the third went on to win the Canadian International. So I'll Water be interested to see yeah. where, yeah, where, where she ends up in the rankings. Now, so Mark Prescott has statues, doesn't he, of Alba Nova and... <laughs> Alborada, famously yeah. at Heath House. This filly's from the same family and has now won more group ones than either of those. So I'd suggest that she should have an even bigger statue. I'm glad that you talked about scale because uh, Samar Prescott wouldn't show me that statue of Alborada and asked me to guess what scale it was. And, and put on the spot, I just panicked and came out with some burbly answer. Mm. And the <laughs> it was, I was obviously very badly wrong and the disappointment was palpable so um, I'd like please to mark um, a real scale uh, statue of Alpinista please so that there won't be any embarrassing moments like that isn't it exactly half isn't that the uh, isn't that the right answer no, yes you see you know, you'd have been spot on and no I, was, I wouldn't I, I've got a feeling <laughs> nagging in the back of my mind that he did the same thing to me and I said something <laughs> half like a tenth or something and it was actually a half or 
something. Oh, well, like that. I, it's interesting to hear that it might be a serial test that we've both failed. That's hilarious. Could you? Well, obviously. <laughs> uh, obviously. Oh, that's really good. <laughs> so beware, young journalists out there. If you ask the question about Alvarado, you're primed and ready to go. You're going to have to find a new question to mark. Well, the chief supporting performance, if you like, at Sandown Park on Saturday came from the sprinter Rassel, who managed to keep himself out of trouble under another fine ride from James Doyle to win for trainer Mick Appleby and the owners. The horse watchers is Chris Dixon joins me now. Right, Chris, since you picked this up for 10,000 guineas from the Tattersall's horses in training sale, what is, what's his record? Just remind me. Well, um, we managed to do our conkers on him at Chelmsford. Um, back in, in January of last year. It seems like a long time ago, but it was January 2021 when um, I thought it was immoral, to be honest, <laughs> going to Chelmsford. And uh, he, he he got caught relatively late on um, by a horse of James Fanshaw, Show Me a Sunset. And then he, he was disappointing on a couple of starts and then he sort of took off and his, his record now is, is eight wins um, in his last 10 starts and eight from 13 since we bought him, he's, he also obviously won on his debut for his former connections. So he's a he's a nine-time winner. He's got some strike rate. He has got an amazing strike rate for a horse who's come up through the ranks like he has. Now, I, I read that you you bought him with a little problem, knowing that if you got it right, he could be he could be pretty useful. When did you think, oi, oi, we've we've actually got something a little bit more than useful here? We've struck gold. Um, I think towards the kind of uh, the, the end of last season, really, um, when, when that run that he was on at Nottingham, um, the, the way that he was going at that point, we started to think that he was a horse that was going to develop into a, a top-end handicapper. And you know that when you've got those top-end handicappers that the bridge up to listed and group company isn't a million miles away and he was giving us a lot of encouragement at at that point as he was going through the handicap ranks that he was traveling so well in his races apart from his last win at Nottingham when he went on on easier ground and he'd been very very busy it was another quick turnaround for him apart from that day he was never really coming off the bridle in his races he was doing it all very very easily and you were watching him and just thinking well how good are they going to have to be to get him off the bridle in a race? And and we were taking the view that he would travel very well through better races, and that's what he's continued to do. Um, I thought at Haydock before the weekend, he was brilliant with the way that he went through that race, and the the tempo of that, that day at, at Haydock really suited him. So we've had it in our minds for a while. When we first bought him, we genuinely thought that he had the potential to make up into a a listed or group level performer just because of his debut performance we had to reset that those ambitions um once we got to uh, a couple of runs in at chelmsford when he was beaten and, and then he was disappointing but then when he started going the right way last year we did kind of reassess and think look we've got a smart handicapper that might make into something better okay so what's the dream what's the dream for the end of this season the the dream would be the Nunthorpe, I suppose, just because it's a, a local track to a good number of us and it's a Group 1. Um, that's the dream. But I suppose, without sounding too corny, we're kind of living the dream already that we've got him up to Group Company and we're now going to Goodwood where he's unbeaten in two starts. And and that's that race has been the target for some time. Um, 
the 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 King George Qatar stakes, we've kind of highlighted that as a race where we felt he could make his marking group company. We thought that race all along was actually going to be a better fit than the the Coral Charge that he won at the weekend, because although it's a higher level, it's a lot of the same horses that end up turning up. Yes, you you get a couple of better ones in in the group too. Um, but you know, with Batash out of the way nowadays, and he used to farm this race, it, it's got the the look of the kind of race that can be quite open. The betting will look like a really competitive five furlong handicap. I would think. I, I doubt very much that there'll be a standout when you get there on the day, and we'll be throwing our hat into the ring. So I think that's a, a race that that we've targeted for a long time, and we think can suit him extremely well. Uh, and what about taking him somewhere further afield at the end of the season? Uh, that that's got to be on the agenda as Mick said after the race um, at the weekend the, the the Abbey would be a race that you'd look towards but the ground I know that he won early on in his career on an easy surface but I think he's too fast a horse to be wanting um, really slow ground and you know I suppose the dream thing for us would be to take him out to the Breeders' Cup if we could that, that would have to be in the reckoning if he goes and wins or runs well at Goodwood um, and he's competitive in, in either a Nunthorpe or a Flying Five, then I suspect that we'll be thinking about that and, and sending him over to the States at the, at the very end of the season. All right, Chris Dixon there. Thanks to Chris and to Luke Morris and Marie Rojo earlier in the show. Lydia is still with me. Uh, one bit I've forgotten. We've talked a bit about Gosden horses. We've talked a bit about fillies. We've talked a bit about three-year-olds. We haven't talked about Emily Upjohn. And our colleague David Yates wrote in the piece in the Mirror, uh, this morning saying that she would not go to the King George. She would go to the Irish Oaks. Well, I suppose you could do both theoretically, but uh, the Irish Oaks is her number one target. They want to get the group one under her belt. Yes, it's a shame, isn't it? I can see that because she hasn't got a group one yet. And so maybe you would ideally want to go into the King George with that box already ticked. But it is a shame because I think she would have been suited by it. Of course, here we have a horse that of, for four of her career starts, three times she's been ridden by Frank Dittori and also the last three times. So Willie the Musadora and second in the Oaks. What's going to happen there, Nick? Mm, yes, I suspect that that's probably an easier one. I mean, if uh, I, I, given John Shack, the owner, said last week, frankly, John can do what he wants. John ah. and Thady can do what they want. I think, I think the answer is probably likely not, but... I can see that why they're doing what they're doing. Does it also who, who will get the call up? Do you think? Sorry, Nick. Who do you think will get the call up then? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I don't know, to be honest. Uh, mm. uh, how about Colin Keane? Ah, mm. could yeah. be. Yeah, yeah. Another classic. Like another classic at the Curra. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He'd like that too. Yeah, there you are. Just just one out of the back of the hand, or maybe maybe Rab Hablin will ride her. Who knows? So what was, the, what was the question you were going to ask when I asked, asked you that question? I was going to say, do you think... Well, obviously, we know she's very good, but there was a bit of a, a theory after, after Derby weekend that the Oaks was a much better race than the Derby. Do you think there's a bit of re- revised thinking on that now? Uh, yeah, I, I, I wasn't of that view. Yeah, um, I know. I, I thought the Derby was, was strong and deep, and uh, I thought the Oaks was a bit... Uh, uh, falsely run and so uh, and, and a, a few things happened that could have muddied the waters slightly in terms of all of these fillies uh, meet again at the moment I would be of the view that the Colts are stronger than the, the fillies and I think that uh, the evidence of Tuesday albeit you know it was a um, a, a tough ask and a, a relatively quick return the evidence mm. of Tuesday serves to underline that 
uh, the Eclipse, two three-year-olds in the first three, Lancashire mm-hmm. Oaks, the two three-year-olds were pretty well stuffed. So that's another, that might be a bit more grist to the mill as we, as we drive into this week in the July week. Have you got a tip for me? I do have. I, I should just say, I was delighted to hear Chris on um, this uh, podcast, particularly as I'm still deaf in my right ear from standing next to him after rehearsal when the uh, Coral Charge on Saturday. Ah, or not taking a share in rehearsal, of course, is the other. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that would, that would, I mean, it's actually, to be fair, um, because this was, was, a, was a sprinter, I probably wouldn't have even considered it. It's Ross Collin, I think, is probably, probably my, a, a big mistake uh, on my part. But there we are. Uh, you know, these things happen, particularly when you can only, only buy into one of them and not all of them. Yeah, we've uh, all got ones that got break. away, don't worry. We've all yeah. got ones that got away. Okay, so what are we, what are we going for? Okay, we're going for a golden flame. This is at air in the 335, the one mile five furlong race. Golden Flame has been flying rather high uh, the last couple of times running in the Northumberland Plate and the Ascot Stakes. Prior to that, he was an excellent second behind Valley Forge at Haydock. That was over two miles, but he is effective over shorter. And I think he is a little bit too, well, quite a bit too, too um, long in the market, given that this is a, a much less competitive race than any of those races that I have just cited. Uh, 11 to 4 in, the play, in a place at the moment, but widely available at 5 to 2. So that is Golden Flame today at air in the 3.35. All right, Lydia, thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening. Be back to do it early uh, tomorrow morning. But that was Monday, July the 4th. Happy 4th of July to all our international listeners. Bye-bye. Yeah! You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.